many of us know several Bible stories from our Sunday school days. Noah's flood, Samson and the Philistines, David and Goliath, but we may not know how they fit into the overall story that stretches from Genesis to Revelation. In today's podcast, I attempt to give a broad overview of Scripture to see how it all fits together. The bottom line? There is an inner narrative coherence throughout the entirety of Scripture. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Last week, I started what will be a series on biblical themes. I hope that this will serve as a good introduction for people to start reading and comprehending the Bible. However, it occurred to me that even before I start discussing themes, I should do an episode that does a big, very big, mind you, overview of the whole Bible, what I'm going to call an historical narrative overview. When people first start to read the Bible, they don't have an understanding of the full story or narrative, so it's easy to get lost. It's easy to understand a single story, but where or how does that story fit into the big picture? Without this context, it would be like knowing the story of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, but not quite understanding why he was killed or how that assassination fits into the context of the Civil War or even not understanding how the Civil War fits in with the rest of American history, what came before, and how it eventually leads to the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, or the Black Lives Matter Movement of today. So, I've got a big task ahead for this episode, but I pray it's useful for my listeners, and it helps you get a firm grasp of the biblical literature. So, if I had to sum up the biblical story into digestible segments, I think I would do it this way. First, origins, then the patriarchal period, or covenant, then Exodus and Judges, followed by the monarchy, united and divided kingdoms, followed by the exile and prophets, then the in-between history and its importance, this is between the two testaments, and finally, the unexpected fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So, let's begin with origins. The Bible opens with the book we call Genesis. The opening stories set the pace for the rest of Scripture, but unfortunately, many people miss the point of Genesis and instead focus on contemporary questions such as, are these stories historically accurate? Or are they scientifically accurate? But we need to step back from these modern questions and try to listen to what the text is trying to tell us. We need to try and hear the questions that the text is raising and how it answers those questions. Otherwise, we risk being misled. In short, perhaps the best approach is reading Scripture as literature. This is the main thesis of the flagship podcast here on the Ephesus School Network, and it's ingeniously entitled, The Bible as Literature. So, If we take this approach, what do the stories of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah's flood, and the Tower of Babel tell us? What's it all about? Simply, these stories tell us of our human vocation 
and to some extent explains our current situation in the world. So what is our human vocation? Well, as N.T. Wright puts it, it's to act like a two-way mirror. We're supposed to, one, sum up creation's praises and thanksgiving and reflect them to God. This is worship. And two, we are to reflect God's kingly rule into the world. That is, we're supposed to be good stewards of creation. The New Testament puts this twofold vocation in these terms, love God and love your neighbor. These opening stories also reveal a staggering truth of our world. It's broken. We rejected our twofold vocation and turned instead to ourselves. This is what we call sin. We can say that there are two foundational sins from which all the others flow, pride and greed. Pride is the sin of the mind or heart. It's putting our ego first. Greed, on the other hand, is a sin of material gluttony. Both are a misuse of our talents and a rejection of our vocation. So, instead of living in harmony with God, praising Him and giving Him thanks, and being good stewards of creation, we decided to become a God ourselves. Instead of letting God be our king or shepherd, we rejected Him. The result is that we were exiled out of paradise, and so we are still in this exile, if you will. We live in a fallen and broken world. This idea of exile is a big one. It's one I want you to remember. Exile comes up over and over again in different ways, as enslavement under a king, such as Pharaoh in Egypt, as expulsion from one's homeland, such as the Babylonian exile, as living in occupied territory, such as living in the promised land but being under the boot of the Romans, or as wandering in the desert, such as the Hebrews in the desert of Sinai. The idea of exile also means that we have been enslaved and we're being subject to the harsh realities that exile brings, such as the tyranny of a pharaoh, king, or Caesar, or the harsh climate of a desert. The big picture is that in exile we have been enslaved to death and sin. We need to be freed or rescued in order to move toward God and receive life in the age. This rescue by God is what the rest of Scripture details, beginning with Abraham. This brings us to the second period, the patriarchal or covenant. It all begins when God calls Abraham out of exile, if you will. God calls him to live in a promised land, which we can imagine as a new garden of Eden. In other words, this is an act of recreation. God has started his rescue project. The promise that God gives to Abraham is what we call the covenant. This covenant is repeated over and over and over again in the Abrahamic story. Here's an edited version from chapter 17 of Genesis. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring 
after you. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. The covenant is a sort of new creation. Humanity may no longer live in the Garden of Eden, but that doesn't mean all is lost. God asks Abraham and his descendants to keep the covenant and trust him by walking the way of his instruction. In this way, Abraham and his descendants will become God's people. In return, God promises to be their God and look after them by making them fruitful. But don't get fooled by the word fruitful. We are inclined to think of biological reproduction, but at that very moment that we think of that, God introduces circumcision into the text. In other words, God symbolically castrates Abraham and all the other males to show that his promise does not come about from what man does biologically. When one trusts God, or has faith, as St. Paul will later say, then God's promises are fulfilled through God's free gift, or grace. The birth of Isaac emphasizes this point. As we all know, God promises to make Sarah, Abraham's wife, a mother, even though she's extremely old. In fact, it's biologically impossible. So when Genesis tells us that Sarah does indeed birth a son, we tend to think of it as some sort of miracle where God has made Abraham and Sarah fertile, despite their age. But that's not what Genesis says. In fact, Abraham isn't involved in creating Isaac at all. If you pay close attention to the text, you'll find that Isaac isn't Abraham's biological son. Remember, he had been symbolically castrated through circumcision. The traditional and the husband-knew-his-wife formula, which indicates biological reproduction, is missing. Instead, regarding the birth of Isaac, the text says, The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. That's Genesis 21, 1-2. So Isaac has no biological father. He is, as St. Paul teaches, a son of the promise. Only by God's word is he conceived and born. In addition, of all the patriarchs in Genesis, only Isaac remains in the promised land his entire life. He doesn't leave it to get a wife. He doesn't leave it in a time of famine or when he gets old. This is an indication that he continues to live by God's instruction and God's instruction alone. And because Isaac was faithful to God, he doesn't get exiled out of paradise like Adam and Eve. So, the story of Abraham turns into the story of Isaac, then the story of Jacob, and finally it ends with the story of Joseph. In this overarching survey, we don't have time to go into each of these stories, but I want to point out one quick theme. Just because you are the firstborn biologically doesn't mean you inherit as a son. The patriarchal stories underline this point. Jacob replaces Esau as the firstborn. 
and Joseph, who is one of the younger sons, eventually gets the advantage over his older brothers. The point is being made once again that being a child of God is not dependent on biological birth. Instead, one becomes a child of God by trusting in God as Abraham had done when he left his homeland. God makes you his son through the promise, just as he made Isaac Abraham's son through the promise. The story eventually ends with Abraham's descendants being exiled out of the promised land. At the time of Joseph, the entire family moves into Egypt to avoid a famine. It is here that, eventually, all his descendants become enslaved to Pharaoh. In other words, it's the story of Adam and Eve all over again. No longer are God's people in paradise. Instead, they face the reality of a broken and fallen world and are forced to live under tyranny. This is where we turn to the book of Exodus and our next theme, the Exodus and Judges. Most of us are familiar with the story of Moses and the Exodus. To free the Hebrews, the name used for Abraham's descendants here, God raises up Moses, a shepherd, to confront Pharaoh. After several plagues, God decides to kill the firstborn male of every living thing. To avoid this horrible tragedy, God tells the Hebrews to slaughter a lamb, eat it, and spread its blood over the lintel of their doorway. If this is done, the angel of death will pass over their household. Thus the feast of Passover is instituted. Pharaoh decides to let the Hebrews go, but at the last minute he takes his army and starts to pursue the Hebrews. However, as his army starts to cross the Red Sea, God drowns Pharaoh's entire army, and the Hebrews make it safely into the Sinai Desert. While in the desert, here's another exile imagery, by the way, God gathers his people and we have another creation narrative. Now God creates his people as a nation, the nation of Israel. But like Isaac, this creation is not through biological birth. Instead, this nation is created through the giving of the law, God's instruction to his people. God creates the world by speaking and separating things such as the light from the darkness, so as to organize everything. Here we have something similar. God speaks and Moses receives the law, which separates holy things from common things, impure things from impure things. Thus God's people, a new nation, comes into being. Commentators have noticed that even God's instructions for the tabernacle, the tent that serves as a temple in the desert, resembles the creation narratives at the beginning of Genesis. But perhaps the most important aspect of the law in the tabernacle is that this is how God is present among his people. This is how God walks with them in the new garden of Eden, so to speak. Just listen to this description from Exodus chapter 40. Moses set up the tabernacle. He took the covenant and put it into the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, 
before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. The reason the temple was the tabernacle, a tent, was so that God could go and be with his people wherever they went, even if they were in exile in a desert. When Solomon replaces the movable tabernacle with a stationary temple, the temple ends up being destroyed. The fact is, God never wanted a temple and preferred the movable tabernacle instead. Also, notice there's a connection between God's presence and his law, his instruction about walking the way. The law rests in the ark, which is the presence of God. So we can say with confidence, walking the way is equated with how God dwells among his people and how we are made God's people. Right before the Hebrews enter the promised land, Moses reminds them that they are a people, a nation, not because of their ancestry, but because they have been called by God and given his instruction. Just like Isaac, this nation is born from God's promise. Therefore, they should heed God's word. If they do, it will be well for them. Here's what Moses says. If you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments that I am commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2. Moses then goes on to list the blessings. By the way, this is what is happening when Jesus gives the Beatitudes. He's revisiting these blessings from the book of Deuteronomy. To emphasize the point that the formation of God's people is through God's instruction and not through a bloodline, Moses tells the people that real circumcision, remember, this was a sign of being a part of God's people, real circumcision is not a matter of cutting the flesh. Here's what Moses says. When you return to the Lord your God and you and your children obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, just as I am commanding you today, then the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Then you shall again obey the Lord, observing all his commandments that I am commanding you today. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, and then 6 through 8. So, those are the blessings. At the same time, Moses warns them what will happen if they disobey God. By the way, these can be compared to the woes of Jesus to the Pharisees. Here's what Moses says. But if you will not obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments and decrees, which I am commanding you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you serve over you to a nation, that is, exile, that neither you nor your ancestors have known, where you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. That's Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 and 36. In other words, if you don't walk the way, you will be exiled into a foreign land. As we know, this is what happened to Adam and Eve. This is what happened to the Hebrews, and they ended up in Egypt. This exile theme is reoccurring. If you're keeping track of the books, God's instructions to his people before going into the promised land is the content of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
in Deuteronomy. So, with God's instruction laid out, and with the blessings and curses of either following or not following the instructions given, the Hebrews set out into the promised land. Originally, God and his law were to serve as their king, shepherding them as a nation. When trouble reared its ugly head, God's way was to send a hero, which we call a judge, to deal with the matter. The Israelites were to trust or have faith in God and not themselves by building cities or creating armies or by anointing a king. They were God's people, and he would care for them. The stories of this period are covered in the books of Joshua and First and Second Judges. But soon the people, like Adam and Eve, reject God and ask for a king. And now we move on to our next act, the monarchy, the united and divided kingdoms. The prophet Samuel tries to warn the people when they ask for a king. They should depend on God, not kings. Here's what he says. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flock, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in this day. That's 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 18, though edited. In other words, trusting in a king rather than walking by God's instruction will mean that they'll be enslaved to yet another tyrant, just like they were in Egypt. But the people still insisted on a king, and God decides just to let it play out. At this point, we move into the stories of the united monarchy under three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And these stories can be found in First and Second Samuel. Since we've been looking at the narrative since Genesis, it's not a surprise to see that the reign of the kings ends in disaster. Even David, whose name means beloved, is a joke. As a shepherd boy, things go well for him. But when he becomes a king, he commits adultery, murder, and is the cause of 70,000 of his people dying. And his son Solomon, who is the wisest person the world has ever known, he ends up marrying 700 women, and this isn't counting the 300 concubines, and following after foreign gods. In other words, Solomon's wisdom is a joke. As a king, he has enslaved his people just as Samuel had warned them. After Solomon, the kingdom divides into two, northern Israel and Judah, or Judea, in the south. The stories of these two kingdoms is told in 1st and 2nd Kings, and then retold in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's at this point that we get the stories of Elijah and Elisha. As you can guess, the kings of the divided kingdoms also fail to follow God's instruction, with two major exceptions, Hezekiah and Josiah. These two men were considered righteous because they attempted to bring the people back to God's law. But the other kings are failures. So remember those blessings and curses given by Moses? Remember what Moses said would happen if God's people don't follow his instruction? That's right exile into a foreign land. 
It's Adam and Eve leaving paradise all over again. So this brings us to our next section, the exile and the prophets. First, northern Israel falls to the Assyrians. This means that the identity of Israel now falls to Judah. It's sort of like that younger son inheriting instead of the older son, as we saw previously. Northern Israel serves as a lesson for Judah to learn. Don't disobey God, or you too will be exiled. But Judah didn't learn the lesson, and eventually, in 587 BC, Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, fall to the Babylonians. The Judeans, or Jews, are exiled into Babylon. This means that the presence of God no longer dwells in the temple among the people, because the people are no longer in the promised land. From a narrative point of view, this is the end of the Old Testament. It ends with the people scattered among the nations with little hope, just like Adam and Eve, just like the Hebrews in Egypt. God's people are waiting to be rescued. They're waiting to hear the call as Abraham had heard it and as Moses had heard it. They're waiting for a new creation. It's at this point in the story that the prophets enter the stage. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. In addition, there are also 12 minor prophets. Through them, we again hear God's instruction to his people. Even in exile, God's voice is heard. The prophets remind the people that they were exiled as Moses had warned them, because their kings were evil in the sight of God. The kings failed to love God, and they failed to love their neighbor, especially the least of these, the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the immigrants. The imagery that the prophets famously used to describe this is the idea of a harlot being unfaithful to her husband. Israel and its kings are the unfaithful harlot, and God is the betrayed husband. But the prophets insist that it's still possible to be God's people, not by birth or depending on your ancestors, but by following God's instruction even in a foreign land. The stories of Daniel and the three youths in the fiery furnace demonstrate this for us. Other prophets provide hope that God will again rescue his people as he once did from Egypt. Here's the prophet Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. It's Jeremiah 31, 31-34. The fulfillment of these promises comes, at least for Christians, through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. This brings us to the in-between history and its importance. A few things happen in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most importantly, during this time, Judaism fractures into different sects. So by the time of Jesus, there are many different types of Judaism, just like there are different denominations of Christianity today. 
In addition, the Persians conquer Babylon and allow the Judeans to return to Jerusalem. They also allow them to rebuild the temple. We call this the Second Temple. Later, it's refurbished by Herod the Great. What you need to know about this temple is that not all Judeans believed that God's presence had re-entered the temple. This meant that not everyone believed that God was present among his people, as he had been during the time of the tabernacle or the time of Solomon's temple. While some Judeans, such as the Sadducees, saw the temple system as legitimate, others, such as the Pharisees, did not. So they chose to find other ways to worship God. After the Persians come the Greeks. While the Judeans were under Greek rule, they rebelled and were, for a short time, able to re-establish their kingdom, the Hasmonean dynasty. This story is told in the book of Maccabees, and it's the story behind the celebration of Hanukkah. The Hasmonean dynasty eventually falls, and by the time of Jesus, the Romans have conquered the Holy Land. So, at the opening of the New Testament, you have a variety of Judean sects. Some see the temple and Roman rule as legitimate, or at least okay, but others do not. Those who are unhappy with the Romans see them as an illegal occupying force. God's presence is not among them in the temple, and even though they are in the geographic location of the promised land, they are still, in many ways, living in exile. They are waiting for a time when God will act and bring his people together to be God's people. This is important to know because it explains the unrest at the time of Jesus. And this brings us to the last section, which I have entitled, The Unexpected Fulfillment in Jesus Christ. For Christians, the return from exile, the exodus, or God's rescue of his people, comes about through Jesus Christ. In the Gospels of Mark, Luke, and especially the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' story is told as a summary of the history of Israel, though this time a successful one. After his birth, he is baptized in the Jordan River. This is a retelling of the crossing of the Red Sea by the Hebrews. The message is clear. Just as God rescued the Hebrews, God is again rescuing his people. After Jesus is baptized, he is anointed by the dove. God's Spirit is upon him. Then immediately, Jesus is driven out into the desert for 40 days. This is similar to the exile of the Hebrews who wandered in the desert for 40 years. When Jesus returns to civilization, he gives the Sermon on the Mount. This is the equivalent of the law being given to the Hebrews by Moses at Sinai. As you can see, Jesus sums up the Old Testament and relives the story of God's people. If you follow Jesus' movements closely, you also notice that he often teaches and heals when he is in Gentile territory. This represents God being with his people, even in exile. Just as Abraham heard God's voice in a foreign land, and just as some of the prophets spoke in exile, God's call to follow his instruction, trust in him, and become his people, comes to us no matter where we are. Jesus teaches us that to be God's people, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, we have to turn from our rebellion against God, this is repentance, and trust that Jesus shows us the way. Our trust is that God makes us his people through his promise, just as Isaac was born through the promise. It's not dependent on biological descent from Abraham. 
But just like Adam and Eve, and just like the Israelites who asked for a king, the people of Jesus' day reject him and crucify him. We can think of it this way. We often think about Jesus as being God incarnate or enfleshed. Well, we can also think of Jesus as God's instruction or law enfleshed. And just as the people had abused God's law and disobeyed it throughout the Old Testament, they abuse Christ. What happens in the crucifixion is what had happened in the overarching story in the Old Testament. There's failure of the people to walk the way. But Jesus is vindicated, his resurrection gives us hope, and shows us that God's way is the correct one. If we heed God's instruction and walk the way, even in the face of persecution and death, then life awaits us, the life of the age. Paul refers to this as new creation. He sees this creation as being born from old creation. He puts it this way, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. That's Romans eight twenty-two through 24 God created a new world after Noah's flood. God created a nation at the time of the Exodus. And through the prophets, God promised to create a redeemed world, one liberated from exile, one in which all people would be God's people. The New Testament insists that this is now happening through Jesus, the Anointed One. St. Paul, in his letters, also emphasizes the cross, and rightly so. For St. Paul, Jesus perfectly embodies God's love because he was completely loyal, that is, faithful, even to the end. When Jesus allows us to crucify him, he has shown us God's perfect love. In the crucified Christ, we so completely see God the Father that we know that Jesus can be none other than the Son of God. For St. Paul, all of this is good news. It's gospel. We are rescued, set free from our exile, and our enslavement to death and sin, all through Jesus' death and resurrection. Death has been slain by death. This gospel, according to St. Paul, is offered free of charge, but it comes with a charge. We are to continue to live by God's instruction. We are still to walk the way by loving God and loving our neighbor by caring for the least of these. The Gospel of John builds on all of this in different ways. In this Gospel, the focus is on showing how Jesus is an embodiment of the temple. Remember, the temple was God's presence among his people. The discourses in John are, essentially, showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple feasts. In other words, if Jesus is an enfleshed, walking temple, then he is God's presence among us. God is present with us, but instead of inhabiting a building, he now comes to us through Jesus and his word. The Bible ends with the book of Revelation, which has been a hard book to understand. The point is essentially that people will continue to disobey God's instruction. And for those of us who do follow Christ, it may mean persecution and death. But we should not lose hope. God will vindicate his people and recreate us to inhabit a new heaven and new earth. This is what St. John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 21, 1-2 In the end, we will not be left out, exiled from the Garden of Eden. God is acting to bring us home. So, that's my overarching big picture overview of the entire Bible in one shot. I hope you found it useful. Join us in the coming weeks as we explore individual big picture themes on the way with Father Dustin, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. <laughs>